Hey, Reveal listeners, if you've been listening to American Rehab, you don't need me to tell you about the importance of great investigative journalism. It really helps us when our listeners rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It's so easy to do, and it helps others find our show. So we've got a bonus for the next 200 people who review us, Reveal Tote Bags. Like our t-shirts, they're simple and elegant, dark blue with the word facts written across the front in bold type. So here's what you got to do. Text the word REVIEW to 474747, and we'll give you instructions on how to get one while supplies last. Again, text the word REVIEW to 474747. You can text STOP at any time, and standard rates apply. And when you leave the review, if you want to tell them that Al Ledson is your all-time favorite host, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to be mad at that. Thank you so much for your review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a huge difference. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Ledson. Please, on top of the hill, see there's a similar building there. That is Fort St. Jago. Father and son, James and Amson Hagen, are on a tour of Elmina Castle. It's one of the many fortresses designed by Europeans, built by Africans, that dot the coast of Ghana in West Africa. Yes, 1665-66. Some of their soldiers were there. Before being packed onto ships to make the long, often deadly journey across the Atlantic, captive Africans were imprisoned for months in these white stone buildings. They were kept in dungeons on the lower floors, with living quarters for European enslavers above. The Europeans called them castles. Any other question, please? Have something to say? No. <laughs> James's son, Amson, is chuckling because they visited this and other slave castles before. And his dad always asks a lot of questions. James is Ghanaian-American, a retired high school social studies teacher from Maryland. Amson's a graduate student in anthropology at the University of North Carolina. Okay, where the, the slaves who were left here, were they in chains? Uh, in most cases, in dungeons, they were not in chains. But really, the difficult ones were in they chains. Are, if, let's say, 600 people here yeah, when, who are slaves, they are not in chains. And the masters have maybe about five or four of them. Don't you think that they'll be able to subdue them of and course. free themselves? Of course. Uh, the guide explains that prisoners were chained when they were taken out of their cells. They were led through a door that he points out. It has a plaque above it that says, Door of No Return. And it's intentionally narrow, so captive Africans had to walk out one by one from near darkness to sudden blinding sunlight. Oh, please, uh, can you go inside? The guide directs the group into the cramped cell. People stand uncomfortably close to each other. Suddenly, the room goes dark. The only light comes from around the edges of the door. The guide has unexpectedly shut it. (laughs) The nervous laughter lasts less than a minute before the guide opens the door. Amson looks relieved. So that one felt new. But also since I'm older, having to crouch down. You know, when I was small, I didn't have to crouch. He examines the door of no return and shudders. Think about all the work and mental labor that I went into constructing this place so that it was efficient for its task. It's pretty, you know, remarkably awful. This remarkably awful history is being re-examined this year as people on both sides of the Atlantic try to come to terms with this shameful anniversary. Historians believe the first enslaved Africans arrived in the British colonies in late August 1619, 400 years ago this month. And though those men and women were not the first African people brought to North America, their arrival marked the beginning of American slavery, an institution that has marked and guided the destiny of our country up until today. And equally, it's had an influence on the African continent, which is why we're starting today's show in Ghana. We're teaming up with public radio show The World. They sent reporter Rupa Shinoy to Ghana, where the country has declared 2019 as the year of return for African descendants across the world. It's a part of a major tourism push. 
But as people from around the globe converge, worldviews are also colliding as they try and reconcile a brutal shared history. Rupa begins our story with one woman who's been coming to terms with that history most of her life. Mona Boyd owns a tourism business in Ghana's capital, Accra. Her company specializes in travelers from the U.S., regular citizens as well as diplomats and elected officials. As one of the organizers of Ghana's Year of Return, she helped arrange a recent visit by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and members of the Congressional Black Caucus. I'm happy to see people like Nancy. It's sort of like a, I wouldn't call it mitigation, but it's just an acknowledgement, yes, this did happen. And you, you're not crazy for thinking that this awful thing happened. It did happen. People had seemed to deny the slave trade happened her whole life. They never talked about it or how it happened. The focus had always been on moving on. Maybe because it had to be. Mona grew up in segregated Arkansas under Jim Crow. She remembers her parents whispering about lynchings in the kitchen early in the mornings, thinking she couldn't hear. In sixth grade, though, she learned that there was another place where people who looked like her lived in pride, not fear. Some visitors from Tanzania came to her nearly all-black school. This was like, wow, meeting the queen to us. Mona's been drawn to Africa ever since that day. Most African-Americans, you know, you, you know something is missing and you want to be united with it. If you have any level of awareness about your own identity, where you came from, you would have to start asking those questions. It's a tough history to confront, and some Ghanaians have avoided it, too. Because we don't look around, we don't look back. I went to see a local historian who's also a former mayor of Accra. My name is Nat Amatefio. People around here affectionately call him Uncle Nat. Okay, so what are we here to talk about? I asked him to go back to the beginning, to when the transatlantic slave trade began. Uncle Nat explains that leaders in this region had a lot of gold, and word got back to the Europeans. They named it the Gold Coast. In the 1400s, the Portuguese showed up here with guns. Primitive guns, but guns. With guns, you had vastly a superior form of intimidation. It made a hell of a difference. There was already a domestic slave trade when they arrived, Uncle Nat says, although slavery didn't mean what it came to mean in America. Enslaved people had some rights and opportunities. Still... The system already existed. The Europeans saw it and thought, ah, we can try these people in our lands in the New World. But Europeans weren't going out and capturing people themselves. They couldn't. They got sick and died from illnesses like malaria. So some African ethnic groups went into business, warring with other groups and selling their captured prisoners as slaves to the Europeans. Uncle Nat says they were organized and intentional about it. Because somebody has to go out there. Somebody has to locate the victims. Somebody has to lead an army there. Somebody has to capture them. The Portuguese, the Dutch, and then the British all participated in the slave trade in Ghana. Then, starting in the late 1700s, a shift began to pierce this global industry. The British abolitionist movement, the French Revolution, and rebellions by enslaved people like the Haitian Revolution all spread ideas about equality and humanity. When the slave trade was abolished, it was a result of a long negotiations with slave owners in Europe, as well as with slave owners here. Both the British and the new United States of America passed laws abolishing the slave trade in 1807, though outlawing the institution of slavery itself would take decades more. After abolition, the British went from being at the center of the slave trade in Ghana to patrolling the coast to make sure no illegal slave ships got by. They made treaties with African chiefs to protect them from other ethnic groups in a series of wars. Uncle Nat says the British used those agreements to eventually declare themselves the colonial rulers in 1874. They hoisted a flag and claimed that they were now sovereign. During the 80 years of British rule, Uncle Nat says the African role in the slave trade was deliberately forgotten. There is a willful amnesia about the roles that we played in the slave trade, a willful amnesia. Our chiefs and peoples decided, all right, we will not talk about it. Don't ask, don't tell. They created a mythology 
that we were innocent bystanders whose land was raped by Europeans. In 1957, Ghana became the first African country to break away from colonial powers and declare independence. It was the height of the U.S. civil rights movement, and African Americans started to travel to Ghana. Uncle Nat was in his first year at university. He and some friends were asked to serve as guides. So I remember when we they asked us, "So who was sold?" We said, "Oh, only the bad people, thieves and drunkards." They were just making it up because they didn't actually know what had happened. The history had never really been taught, and what history was taught was very sanitized. It was a disaster. A lot of African Americans were very disappointed to find this kind of blasé attitude. This is about the time Mona Boyd first came to Africa. She had just graduated as part of one of the first classes of African Americans out of Boston College after the Civil Rights Movement. Most Africans, when I came to this country, would not admit that this even happened. She says it was disappointing, but there was and still is ignorance on both sides. Some African Americans, because they have a different mindset about, you know, Africans. They think there is a much deeper brotherhood. Than what I think, but we all have a right to handle this in our own way. Still, she says, visiting the slave castles changed her. We were constantly, my generation, trying to prove to white people that we were good enough, we were smart enough, that we deserved to be there. That was a huge, big burden. We had to prove that to every white person we went, every job we had. But after. I had gone through those castles. I didn't care what you thought. You just couldn't define me anymore. After Mona went back to Boston, she met her Ghanaian husband Eric at a party. She went into real estate. Eric was in IT. Soon they were both making six figures, living in a brownstone in Boston's historic South End, where they could walk to the symphony. We were trying to get pregnant when the Rodney King thing happened. Three police officers facing felony criminal charges were among a group of 15 who stopped a 25-year-old black man last Saturday night, then beat him, kicked him, and clubbed him. It was 1991. She remembers watching that video of Los Angeles police beating King after a traffic stop. I remember just weeping, 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 and I said to my husband, "I'm not going to get pregnant if you don't agree." To move back to to Africa to raise our son. Why should we raise our son here, when our son can go to your country where he will not be marginalized in any way? He can be king. Eric agreed. Their son Selassie was born later that year. Ghana was emerging from a period of unrest, so Mona and Eric waited until the country had a successful democratic election. Then they moved when Selassie was 18 months old. It was a gift to him because we gave up a lot. They arrived in Ghana without a clear idea of what they were going to do, and ended up starting a car rental business. Mona found working in Ghana liberating. I was able to let go that conscious thought about race. Is it race? Is it is it my color? Is it are they going to? You know, I was able to leave that, and it was like having a psychic burden taken off of your shoulders, and you could just move. Mona didn't realize she had more of that psychic burden to shed until a few years later. In 1994, then Ghanaian President Jerry Rawlings apologized for the African role in slavery, and it just made me feel so much better. I stopped feeling resentful, you know, towards Africans about slavery, because I knew that Africans had collaborated big time to the extent that when they ended it, they went to Europe and said, "You can't stop this. Where are we going to get our money?" And I was just always. You know, it was always in the back of my mind, and it was always it always created a trust issue for me, and it and a little bit resentment was always there. All Other the leaders and chiefs slowly followed Rawlings and gave their own apologies, like Chief Kwafu Okutu of the Akwamu people.、Uh, we've rendered our apology to our kinsmen who were taken from、uh, the coast of,、uh, especially West Africa, to the diaspora to go and serve as slaves. You know. We jointly condemn that inhumane treatment that was meted out to them. We cannot explain too much why it happened, but all we say is, with all due apology,、uh, they should come home and put a closure to it, 
so that we can live as brothers and sisters again. The chief is a big supporter of Ghana's declared year of return. He's offered land to any African-Americans who want to come live here. You see, home is home. No matter what happened, we think this is where they belong. They are part of us. What are they moving back home to? That's the question. Blogger and writer Jamila Wombani Abdullahi is one of the few people who have spoken critically about Ghana's call for people of the diaspora to return. She says Ghana remains devastated by colonialism. I know the struggle of living abroad, studying abroad. I have done that multiple times. Um, but it is not the same as trying to figure things out in an environment where the system does not work. Unemployment is high. Poverty and hunger are widespread. If you have to go to a public hospital, you have to bring your own bed sheets, drinking water, and hot water flask. Jamila says some Ghanaians argue that they've suffered just as much as African Americans. Because I think sometimes that's what it becomes. It becomes this narrative of, yeah, the, the people, the, the Africans or the black people in America are struggling more than the black people on the continent or whatever. At the end of the day, the reality is um, it was an injustice to an entire group of people. Jamila just thinks that instead of asking African Americans to return, Ghanaians should be focusing more on the people who are already here. Because I've had conversations over a number of years, and more especially last year, with people who I really considered to be part of those who would help rebuild Ghana. Like, honestly, some of our brightest, most well-equipped people, and they're leaving. Mona Boyd wants to help reverse that trend. Now contemplating retirement, she's decided she wants to make a lasting change by passing her business on to a Ghanaian colleague she trained. Together, they've made her company one of the most successful in Ghana, in part by offering tours aimed at helping African-Americans reconcile with history and heal. It's a very emotional thing that we do because for the first time, Africans are sent to African descendants of the slaves. We're sorry, forgive us. They take tourists to a village that used to be a notorious slave market. There, Mona has arranged for the chiefs to hold what she calls culturally authentic atonement ceremonies. Village elders wash the visitors' feet. They eat together. Black Americans get African names. There's drumming and dancing. This year, over 100 people are going through the process. It teaches them, Mona says. You know, what happened to black people? You know, really what happened and what black people lost? You know, they took the brightest, the best, the strongest from this continent, you know. So what would have happened had those people not left this continent? What would this continent be like? Maybe in a way they'll find out now if more African descendants around the world follow Mona's path Her son, Selassie, has chosen to stay in Ghana and pursue a career in music producing, even though she wanted him to stay in the U.S. after college. I thought he would have a better opportunity, and he said to me, nope, I am not going back there. I do not want to live in a country where they put 30% of the men that look like me in jail. The reason Mona came to Ghana 30 years ago is the same reason Selassie is staying now. 400 years after the first captive Africans were taken from their continent and enslaved in Virginia, the U.S. still isn't a place Mona's family wants to be. Thanks to Rupa Shinoy from the PRX radio show The World for bringing us that story. To listen to more of Rupa's reporting from Ghana, go to theworld.org. While Mona Boyd's family is staying put in Ghana, African-Americans here are looking at the origins of American slavery with a fresh eye and discovering some surprises. That's next on Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. Reveal is brought to you by the University of Virginia and the Sacred and Profane podcast. We often hear it's not polite to bring up religion, but we lose so much when we don't talk about religion. Sacred and Profane is a podcast that isn't afraid to tackle religion. Next up, how white Christians built and maintained Confederate monuments across the U.S. Sacred and Profane is produced by the Religion, Race, and Democracy Lab at the University of Virginia. 
Catch season two wherever you listen to podcasts. Support for Reveal comes from Blinds.com. Transforming your home into even more of a sanctuary is easy and affordable with Blinds.com. They make it simple to shop top quality blinds, shades, and interior shutters from home with easy online ordering and free shipping. Blinds.com has helped millions of homeowners through the process, and they guarantee the perfect fit whether you DIY or have them install everything for you. Go right now and see how much you can save at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. This week's show, we're investigating our own history as a country and a people, looking closely at the moment enslaved Africans were torn from their homelands and brought to what would become the U.S. 400 years ago this month. We're tracing how that moment and the legacy of slavery continues to shape so many aspects of American life. For me, I think I really began to understand what it meant to be Black in America in my teenage years. Listening to groups like Public Enemy and other conscious hip-hop, my world expanded. I was living in a very segregated town in the Deep South, and it was clear, at least to me, that Black people were looked at as second-class citizens. Play your position, and everything will be fine. But that music told me I was bigger than that, that I was greater than the limitations society tried to put on me. But it also created a little bit of a misunderstanding between my father and me. My dad was in the military, and his patriotism for this country that enslaved our ancestors didn't make sense to me. It wasn't something that we talked about, but I remember feeling it. I was in my 30s when I came around to understand that my people fought for this country. Our blood and sweat is mixed into the soil, and we should feel as much ownership, a sense of belonging, as anyone else. It took me so long to realize that. Um, And I also realized that that's all been part of the plan, too. That from the beginning, to make us feel like our own country is not our own country, and we shouldn't give that to them. Nicole Hannah-Jones had the same experience with her father. She's a MacArthur genius and New York Times magazine writer. She's leading a massive undertaking called the 1619 Project that traces the last 400 years of American history. I have been obsessed with the year 1619 since high school. That's the first time that I ever saw that date. It was in a book called Before the Mayflower by Lerone Bennett. And I just remember being shocked that we had arrived here that early and that we had gotten here before the pilgrims and um, just wondered why I never knew that before. And that just seemed really powerful to me. When I think about 1619, I always uh, think about, I don't know if this is the right word, but I always think about the irony of the fact that the first slaves that came here were brought on a ship called the White Lion, and Mm -hmm. they landed near Port Comfort. I mean, just the two of those things just blow my mind away when I think about it. It, It's like fiction, except it's not. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, I think about that all the time. I'm like, if you were writing this fantastical novel, you might have a ship called the White Lion carrying this black cargo in its hull that lands at a place where they will never know a day of comfort called Point Comfort. What you're doing with the 1619 Project, it feels essential for all Americans, for the entire world, to understand the context of America right now. But I would say that most people in the United States have not been taught that history. How did you end up coming to it? So, one, we have to just uh, acknowledge that I was a nerdy-ass child. Um, <laughs> so was I, I but my oh. history goes to comic books. <laughs> you're, like, you're digging into, like, real history. I, say, I was a new type of nerd. Um, so I always have been infatuated with history just in general. And I've always been, as long as I can remember, very aware of race and racial inequality and uh, had this strong sense of injustice. So I was watching the History Channel. Um, I was reading historical books and where I could, historical books about Black people from a pretty young age. But I'd say 
Well, that really started to sharpen was in high school. Our high school offered a one-semester Black Studies class. It was like I was seeing the world for the first time, seeing, one, that there were thousands of books about Black Americans, Africans, about our history, but also feeling this deep anger that no one ever thought we should know any of this. I tend to get or feel anger when I hear people talking about the Founding Fathers in this <laughs> way that frames them as these benevolent individuals that came down and had all these great high ideals, and that's what America is based upon. And knowing the truth of the matter is that most of the men that created these documents owned human beings. Um, yes. One of the things that you say in your essay is that they knew that they owned human beings. They didn't look at Africans as they were less than human. They knew wholeheartedly that they were humans. Uh, I, I would say that, like, there are a lot of historians who, like, make excuses for that and say that, like, well, mm -hmm. they, they didn't quite understand humanity. What's your response to that? I mean, I do think they believed we were inferior, for sure. But, right, there was no doubt that they understood that we were human beings. You see this. They're, they are conflicted about slavery. Jefferson talks about in his writings how one day God will make this nation pay for what it has done. They know full and well the hypocrisy of what they're doing. They know that they are having to torture people in order to get them to do this work in a way that you don't have to do with animals. You don't have to pass laws against animals reading because you're afraid they'll read and want to uh, start an insurrection. You know, you don't have to pass all these laws to keep animals from congregating because you're afraid they're going to plot against you. You don't stay up late at night every night wondering if all of the cows or the, the horses are on your farm are going to rise up against you. You don't have sex and procreate with the animals that you own. So they clearly understand that Black people are human, but they also understand that these enslaved people are making them a lot of money and they want to keep making that money. So I think a lot, and you know, this essay tries to talk about this, is this is why I, we have to teach that slavery was marginal, that slavery wasn't really about money, that Somehow we transport 13 million people across an ocean for an unprofitable institution. We have to tell ourselves all of these myths because how do you say that George Washington was a great man while also acknowledging that he operated a forced labor camp? Like Mount Vernon is a forced labor camp. These are forced labor camps by any definition. And we don't want to reconcile with that because then we have to reconcile with the fact that we were not exceptional. The framers of the Constitution, they lay out the government, but it never mentions the word slavery. What are they saying with that omission? If you're not ashamed of something, you don't hide it. And the fact that the majority of the founding fathers were enslavers and they found a country where they have no intention of abolishing slavery. They, in fact, need a constitution that is going to protect the institution of slavery, but they don't want to utter the word. That tells you that they know that this is wrong. When they're in the Continental Congress and they're drafting the Constitution, there are discussions about what words to use and what words not to use to both enshrine slavery but also have deniability. And that's because they see themselves as creating this new free democracy in a world that doesn't have any. And they want this document to present to the world who we are. And who wants to present to the world that you are a country built on the bondage of one-fifth of your population? And so they make this pact, and the words never appear in the document, even as the document sustains the institution. And if you think about that, this is how race has worked from then until now, mm -hmm. right? You can pass these policies. You can say these things. You can implement things that are clearly racist. But if you never call them by the name, you can deny that they're racist. One of the things in reading uh, your essay that kind of stood out to me, along with the founding fathers who clearly were flawed in, in action, no matter what kind of words they used, Abraham Lincoln, 
Um, Mm -hmm. I did not know this story. So he has five free black men come to the White House. And this is in the midst of the Civil War, correct? Yes. So it's 1862, August of 1862, 243 years to the month that the first Africans were sold into Virginia. And the war is not going well for Lincoln. And he's having trouble getting enough white recruits. And he is contemplating issuing the Emancipation Proclamation. The Emancipation Proclamation, of course, applies only to enslaved people in the rebel states. So if you were still in the Union and were a slave state, you could keep your property. And he's thinking about freeing millions and millions of Black people, and he's worried about what that means to suddenly overnight have millions of Black people free in what should be a white man's country. So he calls five of the most esteemed Black Washingtonians. These men are educated. They are learned. They are ministers, educators, and uh, very much part of the Black elite. And he calls them in, and he tells them very matter-of-factly that he has called them to tell them that he's thinking about emancipating enslaved people, and he has gotten money that, once they're free, to ship them away, (laughs) to ship them to another country. So this man that we think of as the great emancipator, you know, he just, he embodies the inherent contradictions of our country. He believes slavery is immoral, but he also believes that black people should never have social or political equality with white people. And in fact, it would be better if they just weren't here at all, that they are incompatible with democracy. And so he calls these five black men who are abolitionists, who have been, you know, exerting pressure for the liberation of their people to tell them, you're going to finally get what you want, and then I want you to leave. Did any of the advisors that he brought to the White House that day, did any of them consider the idea of, of going somewhere else? Interestingly, yes. So most were absolutely opposed. But there was at least one who thought it wasn't a bad idea. And when you consider it, it wasn't, right? Like, this country had been terrible to us. This country had done the most atrocious things to us. And if they're going to say, you know what, we still don't want you here. We still don't want to give you full rights even when you're free. We're going to give you some money to go start somewhere new. It would have made sense if all of us were like, let's get the hell up out of here. Yeah. But we didn't. It's, the, it's, it's sort of the precursor to uh, the Black Star Line, to Marcus Garvey. Absolutely. And there were, there were during that time, small numbers of Black folks who did try to build colonies in places like Panama, uh, in certain parts of Africa. Um, they did try to strike out on their own and just be rid of a country, a white country that had treated us so poorly. But most Black Americans said, this is our country, our ancestors' bones are buried here. We fought in the Revolutionary War to make this a country. We built this country, and we're not leaving. That's really what my essay tries to get at, is is our founding fathers did not actually believe in the ideals that they wrote down, but we did, and we were determined to make them real. That's Nicole Hannah-Jones of The New York Times. She's heading the paper's 1619 Project, When we come back, how newly freed Black Americans fought for equality, not just for themselves, but for all Americans. Black people said, no, you said that all men are created equal and all men deserve to have these rights. And we believe that and we're going to make that true. That's coming up next on Reveal. From the Center for Investigative Reporting in PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. We're back with New York Times author Nicole Hannah-Jones. She's leading the 1619 Project, which examines the legacy of slavery in America. In her essay, she argues that after slavery was abolished, Black Americans fought to make the ideals of democracy a reality. Ideals that have been missing from our founding documents. So if you look at the Constitution... The Constitution is decidedly undemocratic. The Constitution, as originally written, only provided the franchise for white men who owned land. Most people who were in the country were denied the right to vote by the Constitution. Women couldn't vote. Native people couldn't vote. Black people couldn't vote. And originally, if you uh, were a poor white person, in most places you couldn't vote. But Black people said, no, you said 
that all men are created equal and all men deserve to have these rights. And we believe that and we're going to make that true. So even in the 1830s and the 1840s, even right after the revolution, you have black folks like uh, Martin Delaney, an abolitionist, who say, we believe in universal rights. We believe in universal equality. They're not even arguing just for black rights. They're arguing for universal rights. So they are taking the founding documents in their most literal sense. Now, it's one thing to argue for those beliefs. But what we also know is that Black Americans have constantly died and fought for those beliefs. It was not simply rhetorical. Black people are laying their bodies on the line and they are dying regularly to try to bring democracy to this country. Uh And almost always alone, right? There might be a handful of white people now and then who would join in the fight. But we bore this burden and the brunt of this violence alone and... That's why I say that we, in fact, are actually the perfectors of the democracy because we had no choice but to believe that we could make those ideals real. They could not simply be a vision because we had always been excluded from that vision. Mm -hmm. So the Civil War ends. How do we move into the period of Reconstruction? What, What set that up? So the Civil War ends and largely the white elite, the white landed planters are still in charge. So they've lost the war, but, you know, Lincoln gets assassinated. Andrew Johnson, a Southerner, takes over the presidency. And he just wants to return things to how they were. There's a wave of violence against the newly freedmen down south and all across the south. White legislatures, uh, often the Confederate officers who are after the war, being placed back into these political positions, they start to pass all of these black codes. They're trying to restrict black life and get it as close to slavery as it could. So if you are a black person, uh, they begin to outlaw things like vagrancy. Like you couldn't just stand on the street or you could be arrested and forced to go work on a plantation. You had to sign a contract. So you were forced to sign labor contracts with your former white employer. And if you didn't have a labor contract, you would be arrested and then they would force you to work for your employer anyway. So black people are forced back into a quasi-slavery and the violence gets so out of control that you see the rise of radical Republicans who are like, you know, we didn't just fight this war to reinstitute slavery down there. And they start to pass these amendments. That's when you get the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment during Reconstruction. So they decide, they send federal troops down south, and they decide to get serious about guarding the newly freed people's rights. So this period of Reconstruction only lasts 12 years. But during that period, it's it's really miraculous what happens. Black people get the franchise, and they start voting in very large numbers. They're organizing these voter rights leagues and these equal rights leagues, and they are electing formerly enslaved people into the offices that white enslavers once held. Black people who get into governance start to pass and implement some of the most progressive policies that the South had ever seen. They help usher through the laws that build the first public school system in the South. So for the first time, large numbers of both black and white children are attending school. Reconstruction leads to the election of black officials for the first time. So we could clearly argue that democracy begins to come to the South for the first time. Um, Under the Freedmen's Bureau, we had the first quote-unquote universal health plan where you have federal officials who are insuring health care for the formerly enslaved. So these are really the types of institutions that you're seeing established. You're seeing democracy, you're seeing public education, and you're seeing health care being established because of the enslaved or the formerly enslaved. And it's really this remarkable period where you see the nation could have atoned and started to make things right. But if you know America, you know that that would not last, and it didn't. White supremacy is is baked in. It is the most powerful motivator in America. Some people will read this article and they'll be like, no matter what you lay down, they will read it and say... Yeah, but 16, 19, that was, you know, a long time ago. Mm-hmm. What does that have to do with us, like, right now, today? Like, why is it important that I know about 16, 19, or why I know about 
reconstruction or, or any of that. Like, that's not where we are today. Right. So I have two answers for that. One, if you think the Constitution still matters, if you think the Declaration of Independence still matters, then 1619 still matters, too. You can't pick and choose which parts of our history impacts us today. No one would argue that because uh, the Constitution was adopted in the 1780s that it's irrelevant today because that was a long time ago. It's clearly not. Our um, entire political system, our entire national ideology are constructed around that. And I would argue that that is the same thing for the institution of slavery, that the year 1619 is as important to the American story, to our identity, to who we are, to how we operate as a society as 1776. The second thing that I would argue, there is very little about modern American society that cannot be explained by tracing it back to slavery and the anti-Black racism that arises around it. Why do we consume more sugar than any other Western country in the world? Why do we have some of the worst traffic? Why... Is our geography like it is? Why do we have this type of dysfunction in our politics right now? Why does our democracy even look like it does? Let's say five years from now, there's a completely new administration running the country. And they pick up this, I mean, this, what you guys have done is it feels like a textbook on American history. But let's say they pick up this project, 1619, and they want to implement change based on the history that they find here. What do you think that would look like? Where's the first place you could start? Like, how do we correct the American scales that have been set askew for so long? <laughs> so, one, you know me, and I, we're, we won't. <laughs> you are going to hold onto that cynical bone. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Come on. I just, I, we're talking about 400 years now. Uh, odds are not in hopeful people's favor. But, but before you answer that, then, let me, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. <laughs> if you think that that type of change is not possible, what type of change is possible? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. It's not my job. My job is just to report. Oh, come um, on. <laughs> transformative change is absolutely possible. And it has only ever come in this country based on some type of violent revolution. So we become a country based on violent revolution. We end slavery based on violent revolution. And we end uh, legal discrimination based on violent revolution being reaped upon Black Americans who were fighting this revolution. So I think it's going to take something very massive like that, something that can breach the current society in order to see that. Now, just to be clear, I'm not calling for revolution. I'm just answering the question. Now, it's it's not going to be slow little turns. It's never been that way. It's always had to be something that can rupture the society that is built to ensure that Black people remain on the bottom. I do think without making the explicit argument, this project is an argument for reparations. I don't know how you read the totality of what is here and not think that something has to be done to make up for slavery and then 100 years of apartheid and the legacy of that. That clearly would not end racism or racial discrimination, but it could certainly address the economic exploitation that Black people have experienced that never allows Black people to get equality. And you could certainly, through a reparations package, a call for a new level of civil rights legislation and enforcement that could help bring some of those other areas to equality. So I would never say what's not possible. You know, Five years before slavery ended in this country, most people didn't think slavery was going to end in this country. And at the outset of the civil rights movement, I'm pretty sure very few of those people believed they could end legal apartheid in this country, and they did. So one must believe that transformation can occur. But then one also realizes that what follows the end of slavery is a period of quasi-slavery. And then what 
follows the end of legal discrimination is a system of what many people would call de facto discrimination, mm-hmm. right? So even when we make this massive forward progress, it seems like we always go back to our level, and our level is a society based on white supremacy. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I I feel... Uh... I am pessimistic. Maybe we should see if somebody might offer up to uh, get us some funds right now. <laughs> maybe, maybe this is maybe this is the time to take Lincoln up on that damn offer. I don't you know. know. <laughs> the the crazy thing is, I'm not going to get the figures right exactly. Uh-huh. So you know, don't nobody try to fact check me. But I think Lincoln procured four to five times more money to compensate the uh, enslavers for their loss of property than he appropriated for black people to be able to move somewhere else. So even then, you're like, you really weren't being right. serious. Like, you're not, you, you weren't going to give us really enough to live on and create something great. You were much more interested in, like, you know, compensating those who had owned us. So yeah. uh, if someone wants to take Lincoln up on his offer, I'm just putting it on the record, the money got to be right. So Yes. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. Talk to you later. Bye. Nicole Hannah-Jones writes for the New York Times Magazine and is leading the 1619 Project. You can read her essay and several others that trace how slavery continues to influence so many parts of American life. Check it out at The Times or find a link at revealnews.org. As we put this episode together, I've been thinking a lot about my own return, a trip I took to Malawi, a small African nation in 2012. And it's so random that I ended up there. A nonprofit was looking for a playwright to tell the story of Malawi's transition from dictator to democracy. And I got the gig. Six weeks after I applied, I was on a plane to Malawi. I was so excited to go. But I didn't think of it as a homecoming. First of all, I was going to Malawi, which isn't one of the main areas enslaved Africans were kidnapped from. And I knew the double-headed snake of slavery and colonization has damaged the connection between Black people in Africa and America. And also, I I don't know, I I thought it was corny, a little cliché to have this Black man comes home narrative. All this to say, I didn't go expecting a welcome home parade, and I'm glad, because I didn't get it. Nothing I did to connect with people, specifically Malawians, black people, seemed to work. I I should clarify, everyone was good to me. Malawi is known as the warm heart of Africa for good reason. But I wasn't having that deeper connection, a connection that, no matter how corny my conscious brain thought it was, something inside of me longed for. I had a driver when I was there, Sam. And when I first met Sam, he was very standoffish. But a week and a half in, we started to become friends, and I asked him what he and the people he knew thought about African Americans. He shrugged and said, we're just like white people to them. That broke my heart. This wasn't a homecoming. I was just another stranger in a strange land. So I stopped looking for the connection and just concentrated on doing my job and absorbing as much of the culture as I could. The longer I was in Malawi, though, the more I saw myself in it. We went to a small church, and the call and response of the music brought me back to growing up in North Florida and the little churches I used to go to. I talked to a group of young men in jail. They reminded me of the boys I was mentoring back in the States, kids who grew up in poverty and felt the weight of the system on their backs. And the closer I got to Sam, the more I got to know about him, a father hustling to take care of his kids just like me. On one of the last days there, we drove to the southern part of Malawi. Now, southern Malawi is known for its tea plantations. I knew this on the way down, but didn't understand how it hit me until I saw it. See, I grew up in the South. I can't speak for any other African-American, but for me, seeing plantations brings up a lot of feelings. 
And it was no different here. Green fields that stretched as far as the eye could see with black bodies harvesting the crops. As we drove past the plantations, I sat in the back of our Range Rover quiet, anger mixed with a deep sadness boiling under the surface. We pulled over at a small camp by the road, a place where the tea leaves were gathered, a little tarp to block out the sun and water for the workers' small accommodations for such strenuous work. We got out of the rover and we heard this clack, clack, clack. I didn't know what it was until we got closer to the camp. The workers didn't have shears to cut the tea leaves. They used blocks of wood, and everybody worked in rhythm together. Clack, clack, clack. My companions talked to the workers at the camp. I said hi, but honestly, I was feeling too emotionally full to talk to anyone. So I wandered away, staring at the field that stretched out behind the camp, a couple football fields worth of green. Workers dotted the landscape. The closest were a good 50 yards away. A couple, a man with a wide-brim hat and a woman with a baby wrapped around her back. They bent over in the sun. Clack, clack. Clack. I couldn't take my eyes off them. Mesmerized by the sound and something that, something that I can't name. And then the man stood up and looked towards me and the woman followed suit. And they put their hands out to wave. And I felt it. Traveling across the tea leaves, time and culture, that connection. The connection that I've been looking for. We are the same. Though separated by hundreds of years, the legacy of white supremacy and cultural divides, we are the same, and yet we're not. They are African, I am American, but we start at the same place, and that foundation is everything. In a country made of indigenous people and immigrants who know where their people came from, being the progeny of enslaved people can feel like your beginnings are tied to a shame that is not yours to own. But slavery was not our beginning, just like it was not our end. Our lead producer for this week's show is Ike Shreese Kandaraja. Jen Chian, Kevin Sullivan, and Taki Telenidis edited the show. Thanks to producer Salase Kove Serum for help on the Ghana story. Our production manager is Mwende Inahosa. Our sound design team is the dynamic duo, Jay Breezy, Mr. Jim Briggs, and Fernando, my man, Yo Aruda. They had help this week from Najib Amini. Our theme music is by Camarado, Lightning. Support for reveals provided by the Reva and David Logan Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, the Democracy Fund, and the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation. Reveal is a co-production of the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. I'm Al Letson. And remember, there is always more to the story.